Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'd really appreciate if you could take a moment to hit that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasts in platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could take a couple of moments to leave us a five-star review, I would be very, very grateful. Lastly, we very recently released the Elite Level newsletter as well. So please visit www.elitelevel.co, that's elitelevel.co, to make sure that you can stay tuned with the latest insights from the brightest minds. Now, with all of that said, we've got an amazing guest here today. Molly, it's lovely to see you. Thank you for having me, Alex. It really is a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So Molly, for those out there who don't know much about you, if you could just tell us a bit about your background, your career highlights, and just yourself. God, how much time do we have for this podcast? 45 minutes? So I guess the first the first moment I opened my mouth, you you know I'm probably not from here. So if I rewind back a few years, I, I grew up in the US, right in the Midwest, never intended on having a career necessarily in retail or commercial management, sales, anything of that sort. I actually studied Spanish and engineering, did all of my interviews looking for jobs after university, didn't really enjoy any of the companies I got offers for. And my mom actually got sick of me calling my parents and saying, oh, I got an offer from a company. I don't really want to work there, though. She just got frustrated eventually and said, this is ridiculous. She did use a different word. But for the case of the podcast, she said, this is ridiculous. Why don't you go work for a company you just like? Why don't you go out and work for The Gap? So 21-year-old Molly said, okay, maybe I will. So I applied online to a university recruiting program at the Gap Inc. headquarters out in San Francisco and got hired into a planning and distribution program at Gap Inc. And I honestly can't think of a better foundation for learning how to work in retail than Gap simply because of the autonomy, the authority, the decision-making power that you get very early on. So it kind of laid the foundation for me. I've always been a nerd at heart, though. So I did four and a half years at Gap Inc. and thought, I want to go back and do my, my master's in business. I want to go get my MBA. Looked at loads of schools around the U.S. in particular, had come over to London at that point for the first time, and a friend had suggested, why don't we go check out London Business School? And a couple of our friends said, that sounds great for you. We'll be at the pub. We'll meet you after. So went to a couple of sessions at London Business School and thought, this is my place. This, this is where I want to go. If they take me, it's meant to be. If they don't, I'll stay out here in California. So I got accepted into London Business School and moved over to London in 2009, said I'll be here for two years, then I'll come back to the US. It's 2022, so clearly that plan went well. I had a great experience at London Business School, spent some time working for the Coca-Cola Northwest Europe and Nordics headquarters, stayed on with them actually through my second year of the MBA. And at that point, I got hired by the Marks & Spencer head office to come in and join kind of a fast-tracking leadership program is what they called it. They wanted us to come in and kind of take on managing these big programs, projects, and help Marks & Spencer become more of a forward-thinking retailer. Did a few years there. Incredible experience in many ways, but not my forever company. And at that point, an old friend from L- London Business School said, I think you really should consider Amazon. Have you have you thought about it before? I'm not so sure. It was very early in the Amazon days over here in the UK. They were based out in Slough. Started a conversation with them about a role in logistics for aftermarket services. Incredibly important function, don't get me wrong. Really brilliant, but we had that first conversation, I thought, you know, going back to the conversations I had with my mom, I wouldn't call my parents and say, hey, I'm thrilled about this. My heart is in this. I want to do it. So, you know, we politely parted ways at that point. And a couple of weeks later, got a message from another recruiter at Amazon saying, okay, aftermarket services wasn't for you. What do you think about joining our European fashion team? We're building out this new team based in Luxembourg. 
what do you think about Luxembourg? And I said, to be honest, I've, I've not thought much about Luxembourg before now, really. I've never even been there. But let's talk. And it kind of just snowballed from there. And a few weeks after that, I was getting an offer from Amazon to move my life over to Luxembourg and join the European fashion team. So started my career at Amazon there, spent about eight years at Amazon, a couple of years in Luxembourg. In my second year at Amazon, I took on a second job at the same time. They call that a growth opportunity or development opportunity. In reality, you're just doing two jobs for the price of one. However, it was actually an incredible experience. You know, all, all joking aside, I had a, a role focused on kind of the, the analytics behind how people make buying decisions in fashion. So thinking merchandise planning tools, buying tools, pricing, things of that sort. And then the other half of my life, I was the general manager for the European luggage travel and eyewear business for Amazon Fashion. So my team over here in Luxembourg was building the capabilities. And my team over here, based in Paris at the time, was using those sorts of analytics insights to make decisions. So they married together incredibly well to have kind of the tech and analytics and data heavy side of what I was doing, and then the pure commercial management side. So zipping back and forth on planes and trains between Luxembourg and Paris for those couple of years. And my husband's job was still based in London. And after a couple of years, we said, this has been fun. Let's put our life back in one place. So we relocated back to London just about five years ago now, I think. And that was the point that I made the transition over to the B2B side of retail. Up to that point, it had always been oriented around B2C, consumer type selling, consumer products. And as soon as I really started understanding the difference in selling to organizations versus consumers, it just radically changed my perspective. And I got very excited about the opportunity to do this with Amazon. Spent a few years working in the B2B side and my last role there, I was the country manager for Amazon Business UK and Ireland. And then it was only in March of this year that I, I left after after eight years and joined Curry's to work as their managing director, their general manager for Curry's business now. So just coming up on four months today, it might be actually. Wow. Well, yeah. Congratulations on the four months. So um, that's me. Wow. I mean, uh, Molly, there's a few occasions where I get really excited to dive right into a story and this is one of them. So we're going to go right back to the beginning in a certain capacity because when you were talking a bit about your parents, right, and the decisions that you made and their responses at the time, the thing that was really standing out to me is you seem very purposeful and really intentful in knowing what it is that you wanted to do and, and having conviction behind your decision making, agnostic really of maybe what others thought or your parents thought or otherwise. So I'm just really curious to learn a little bit more about those early years, how much of the way you were at that time being formulated from your parents versus something just innate in you where you just you just knew where you wanted to go and where you wanted to head. It's kind of an interesting one because I don't, I don't I don't think I've really stopped to think about that too much before, but if I can generalize about where I come from in the U.S., it's it's Midwestern America. It's very much a hardworking type land, and you just work. That's that's what you do. And I guess all throughout my education and my life, I never considered an alternative than I want to go out and I want to do the best I can, and I want to be good at what I do, and I'm going to try really hard, and I'm just going to keep going. And I don't think I ever had a moment in my younger years where I ever considered doing anything that stopped that or slowed that down. It's just, I've always been looking ahead to, well, what else do I want to do? What can I work on? What can I try to be better at? 
and then it just keeps going. And I think with my my parents in particular and and my brothers as I was growing up, they're kind of just a a safe space for me to process my thoughts. At the same time, none of them ever had any illusions that they were going to tell me what to do because I probably wouldn't have listened anyway. But they're, they've always been a fantastic sounding board for me to work through some of these big decisions, especially, you know, leaving where I grew up, which isn't really a place that you you leave and you go on to do bigger, different things. You, you kind of just stay where you are. So to move from there to California was already a big change. And then to uproot myself from here and, you know, move by myself to, to London, they were always kind of that place where they just ask me the questions that help me articulate probably what's already in my brain. So they've always been there kind of as my champions and cheerleaders in the background. But yeah, I just, I never, I honestly don't think I've ever considered an alternative scenario where I didn't just keep going. It sounds really strange, but no, I, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? I think that clearly, I I could tell there was something that was fueling or underpinning all of that. So I think that makes a ton of sense. So you studied, you said Spanish and 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 something yeah. uh, else there, and then you've transitioned into fashion at a particular yeah. point. So just want to understand a bit more about the rationale there and really how you found those early years being in fashion. I think if I if I look back to what I studied back in in school, aside from the Spanish, just because I'd, I'd always, you know, loved languages and loved learning. And I, I knew I wanted to explore from an early age, which is also funny because neither of my parents really traveled much when they were younger outside of the U.S. And, you know, first one to get a passport, first one to leave the country, these, these sorts of things. It's just very different. But they were always super supportive of me with all of this. But if I think about that transition into it, I had always always enjoyed the the analytical studies that I did. So anything related to mathematics or science or physics, thing, things like that, because there's like a logic and a sense to it. And I like it. The flip side of that is I've always just been fascinated by how people make decisions and why they do what they do. And those those two actually go together very well in a retail capacity. So be it fashion or the glasses that are sitting on this, why does someone choose to buy this and not that? So I think when I when I took a lot of that background that really like the numbers and the data and the the process and the the thought and brought that into a space that's just fun to think about it sort of opened up this world for me where I realized you know what I actually really like having a career in retail because you can use data and analytics to try to understand decision making and the more that you can incorporate customer feedback into your data and into your thought process the better you're going to be at selling whatever it is you're selling. And so I think once I kind of found my feet in that at Gap Inc. in the early days doing that merchandise planning kind of function, it sort of grew from there. And I, I did have a moment during, you know, going to business school thinking, maybe I should be a consultant. Maybe I should go into finance. And then I realized that's, ac that's actually not me. That would be me doing something that I felt I was supposed to do and not because I actually wanted to. So getting back into retail after the MBA it just kept going and then making that pivot into a B2B type function or leading a B2B organization. It's different for sure. There are obviously very different needs that you have to consider how you sell, what you sell, the platforms that you use. But at the same time, it's just people trying to get on with something at the end of the day. So if you can understand what that something is and tailor the way you do it, then it doesn't matter if it's a business, an individual, a pet that you're selling to, the logic is kind of the same. So yeah, I think the analytical background and things that I studied actually fed really well into a career and a life in, in retail or in fashion and, and things like that. Yeah, it seems like your self-awareness really started to peak around this period, which is awesome. But there was a lot going on. And what I'd love to lean in on is some of 
of the things that were challenging during that time, right? You was at Gap for a period of time. I'm sure it wasn't all plain sailing. So what what was challenging for you at that time, Molly? I think the, to be honest, the career side and the the life side of work at Gap and, and life in San Francisco, this was blissful, beautiful part of, of life when you're young and you have, you're, you're meeting a lot of people that also aren't from there. So I, it feels like ever since I left Wisconsin, I've kind of been an outsider wherever I live because I... I haven't lived where I'm from in such a long time. And so I think you you start adapting really quickly to that idea of constantly trying to understand the world around you and how you fit into it. So the challenges in my gap time had nothing to do with the career. A lot of it really came up when I started thinking about going to business school because my family is brilliant. They've helped me so much through my career and my life. But if I were going to do my MBA, it was going to be on me to to figure it out. So I think that's where I started hitting some of those really big barriers of thinking, oh my God, am I actually going to do this? And how am I going to do this? So uh, I guess the biggest challenge is at that time, we're figuring out how to fund an MBA, how to get out of the workforce for two years, how to move myself over here and try to create a new life on my own. And it wasn't something that I had done to that degree quite before. So the challenges really started you know, hitting in or, or coming in when I made that transition from Gap Inc. and my life in California over here to London in, in those first couple of years in particular. Yeah, and it, it really begs the question is how you were able to push through them because we can sit here and talk talk about it in hindsight and, and you know, but these things aren't easy, right? Uprooting to another country, especially when it's not something that's maybe been familiar mm. from your family and your upbringing and the, the lived reality of now being here alone got to study, got to figure it all out. You know, how did you actually get past these things? You know, if you were giving advice to someone else, potentially in a similar experience? Yeah. You know, some days I don't actually know. When I look back on those first couple of years, it, London Business School, it's an incredible program. It's very challenging and you have to push yourself very hard. And I think that was probably one of those moments where I say, and it was the same thing at my Amazon days where I, I constantly felt as if I were the dumbest person in the room but I find that that motivates me at the same time because I like feeling as if I can learn from other people. So when I look at some of those challenges I faced, I mean, in the first year of living in London, you had family health issues. My flat got robbed. I had a retinal detachment in my eye at the same time. No idea how all that, that happens at one go. And you just have those moments when you think, what am I actually doing here? And I let myself have those pity parties because I think you need to. You need to, the more self-aware you can be and reflective on what you're actually feeling and what's challenging you and what's working and what's not working. If you can take those moments kind of just to get in your own brain, as my nephew would say, going to have a talk with my brain is what he says, and and process some of those things, you've got a choice that you can make. And your choices are how you handle that. And I think in those instances when, you know, things got really, really difficult and I felt very down about how to get through all these things, being able to talk to yourself about acknowledging that being able to talk to others to say, hey, I'm having a really hard time right now. I don't think I'm going to be able to, you know, step up on this project or calling my family or my friends back in California in the middle of the night saying, I just need to, I just need a minute here. And knowing that I had people there for me, my choice was to just keep going. And again, it's because that's just what I've always done because I I won't let myself take another another option. So it really is giving yourself those moments to understand what it is that's challenging you, frustrating you, wading through some of the the muck when you get frustrated about something and everything kind of blurs together and, and trying to take those in bite-sized chunks and just keep moving because sometimes that's all you can do. You're not going to fix everything in one go. So if you can just keep taking those steps forward, you find that 
the steps get easier eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, you know, and the, the conversation I was having with previous guests that came on was just really about looking at our lives as a book, right? Of which we write chapters and a few more words every day. And sometimes we just have to zoom out, right? Put things in perspective to say, if you're going through that difficult time right now, one, it doesn't last forever. Two, it's going to teach you some lessons. And three, it's a pretty small thing in the grand scheme of your entire life. So sometimes just take stock, zoom out, as you say, find a way forward. And then ultimately you're going to accept and become a better person as you move forward. So I love all of that aspect of your story. The kind of round off point on this that I'd love to get from you, Molly, is as you kind of look back on that whole phase and period of your career, is really whether you'd have done it all the same way as you look back now. Is there anything that you would have done differently as you look back? Or do you just look at it and say, no, that was about right? I think up to the point that I finished my MBA, there's nothing I would have I would have changed coming out of the MBA because I, I had come in with this perspective. I'll come over for two years then I'll go. I'll go back to the U.S. I'll find my career, that sort of thing. And then I took a decision to stay. And that role that I took in the organization I joined just after the MBA, it taught me a lot. It finally felt as if I were actually living in the U.K. and not just living in London Business School. And suddenly, even though I'd been here for two years, I was working here and it just Suddenly, my, my mind was open to, oh, my gosh, now, now I'm really living abroad. I'm working abroad. This is very different. Simple little things such as I had no idea what it meant when someone asked, hey, y'all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Why? That's weird. Uh, and then you realize, oh, no, that's actually just kind of uh, it's just a, a, a greeting that people make. And it's these silly little things. And you start getting connected into the culture a little bit more, really understanding the UK as a market segment and what it was doing. A lot of that was great. The flip side of that is I don't think I had found my place there. I don't think I knew where I was going or could see that future for myself because of the the program that I was brought into. The intent was that you would rotate around different roles and you would be assigned to different parts of the business to work on things. And it was really difficult because the people on the receiving end didn't necessarily choose you. You were given to them to come join their team and work on a project. And it was an awesome challenge in a way because you got to work on really like complicated, complex initiatives. And at the same time, there there was always that little sense of does anyone actually want me here? They didn't pick me and I didn't I didn't pick this role. Is this the right thing for me? And so I had a lot of that that self-doubt and that uncertainty of how was this like helping me build towards something? And I I you know, I've done a lot of mentoring, I've managed a lot of people in my career and I always tell them to be very selfish with how they make career choices in a sense that your CV is yours to own, your career is yours to own. And when you take on new roles and responsibilities, what is it that that adds to you? Is it adding you a skill set? Is it adding you a functional expertise, some sort of people management skill, or does it just add you joy? But know what it is and be intentional with that, that choice. And I think with that career choice I made right after business school, it wasn't intentional. And that's where I had this hard time because up to that point in my life, I'd always been so thoughtful in what I was doing and pushing myself forward. And it felt as if I were spiraling a little bit in not knowing where I was going and how that was adding to me. So culturally, I don't think it was the right place for me to grow. I didn't feel as if I could be myself and do a good job. At the same time, I felt as if I had to be someone else in order to do a good job. And then you realize quite quickly, you're not being the best version of yourself in that case as scary as it is to think about leaving and going on and, you know, moving somewhere else, this isn't the place for me. It's not the job for me. And so when I made that transition into Amazon, my my mind was absolutely blown. 
when I had those first conversations with that company and thought, God, I, I talk really quickly. I get excited. I'm passionate about what I do. I don't have to tone down any of this here. I can bring all of that to the table and do a job I want. Get in there. Let's, let's go. We're, we're taking this. So I think it was just that period right after the MBA that I had those few years where I wasn't brave enough to have that talk with my brain and really, you know, understand and digest what it was I was thinking and feeling and be intentional about doing something. It took me three years to, to get there. Wow. So maybe not the best choices. Should I have taken action and done something sooner? Yeah, probably. But at the same time, I still learned a lot from it. And this many years on in my career from there, I've not let myself get back in that position again. Yeah, I think there's so much to be said in that concept of being able to bring your your true and your full yeah. and your authentic self to the workplace. And I know some of these things kind of are, are just put out there and they can glaze over people's minds. But I think it's really important that we don't ignore the importance of that. You can only do your best work when you are bringing your full self to the workplace. And so I guess finding the right workplace can be really important. And I'd love to just double tap on that with you, Molly, to, to, to the people out there that are just thinking to themselves, How do I actually find a home, so to speak, or find somewhere where I can really flourish? Is there certain criteria, certain things to look out for? Just any general advice that you'd give to someone to say, hey, think about these things before you actually sign the dotted line with a company. Yeah. And I know when I say that you want to work for a place where you can be yourself, I understand that that's difficult sometimes. At some points in your career, you may just need a job. You may not be able to find your perfect cultural fit. You may just need to work. Or circumstances will indicate, well, it needs to be this for now. And that's entirely fine. Acknowledging that to yourself, I think, is where the power is. But if you are in a position where you can go out and try to connect with different organizations and try to understand that, I would say the first thing that you have to do, obviously, is research the company. What is the tone of voice that they use? It's not just the words on the page, but how do they come together and, and what does it tell you about kind of the the dynamic of that organization once you get inside? So it, it's all of that upfront research and it's not just the stuff on paper or on the web page. It's trying to talk to people. So let's say I wanted to get into podcasting and I found you. I, I would certainly look up, even before I came here today, look up elite level podcasting, listen to you talk and get a feel for what drives you and think, is that the kind of person that I would want to work with? I mean, I barely know you, but sure as heck, you're the kind of person I would want to work with, honestly. And and it's that kind of thing. So can you listen to people talk about it? Can you actually talk to people at the organization? And I don't just mean your potential boss or your skip level boss. It's as important that you understand from people that are at your level or even potentially within your team to get a feel from them before you come in. And you can't know all the answers beforehand, obviously, but can you give yourself the opportunity to ask those sorts of questions? And I find that as I go through interview processes, because I, I've done a lot of interviews in my my career, I think at Amazon, I interviewed 550 people in my time there. And I've done a lot of interviews myself. And I very quickly get a sense of the types of questions that they ask me, if I think that's the kind of organization that I am going to fit with, because you get a sense of what they care about based on what they ask you. So I think throughout the interview process, I always say you're interviewing a company as much as they're interviewing you. So take note of that and come in with the questions that you want to ask, things that are important to you. And at the end of the process, can you say, you know, I actually felt like myself this whole time. And if you did and you still feel excited about this opportunity, odds are good you're going to be taking a pretty reasonable punt on on that one. 
No, it's f- fantastic advice and all of that. And, you know, we're going to come on to your time and your run at Amazon in a moment. I think one of the really interesting things, of course, I had some time at AWS myself. And, you know, one of the things that always really stood out to me is just the leadership principles and especially that concept of customer obsession. When you talk about the tone of voice of a company, the way they think, the way they act, the way they operate, it's being able to look at things like that because it really tells you what's in the DNA of that business. A company like like Amazon, having such a, a genuine care, focus and obsession around how do we have happy, fulfilled customers? And it, it comes through in absolutely everything they do. It gives you a bit of an indication as to how they think about their employees as well. You had eight years there, which I think says it all. But just tell us a little bit about your experience in those eight years and what kept you there for so long. I can definitely say I did not leave Amazon because I was bored or I was unhappy. I will bore people to tears with how much value I got out of that organization. And I mean, this is an unbiased view because I've left now, but the leadership principles I truly bought into. And if my husband watches this, I've tested him on the leadership principles before because he heard me talking about them for eight years. In all seriousness, though, when you when I first looked at those leadership principles, when I was interviewing coming in, I remember being struck by a couple of them at the time, partly because there are leadership principles that seem to conflict with one another. And I thought, that's kind of interesting. And there are some that just seem so disconnected from the world I'd been living in previously, ones like have backbone, disagree, and commit. And I, I remember thinking, tell me honestly, you actually value when people have a different opinion or a difference of opinion, you're encouraged to have a backbone and have a voice in every room. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm in. And so just reading them initially, you thought, okay, great. I like I like the sound of this. And then very quickly, you realize just how embedded those leadership principles are in the culture of Amazon and how it works. They play in from that first moment when you're interviewing people, the leadership principles are there. When you're talking about performance evaluations, the leadership principles are there. You're trying to break a debate of some kind. Hey, guess what? We're going to come back to the leadership principles on this one. And the customer obsession one, I think, is a really easy one for any organization to say, absolutely right. We are obsessed with our customers. And that's great. I, you know, I appreciate that. However, I think there's a big difference between those that say and those that do. And what I think Amazon is incredibly strong at is making that a a real thing and a real part of how you make decisions. So the whole concept of how you talk about voice of customer voice of customer feedback. How do you capture that? How do you review that? And how do you do something with that? When I think about my my team at Amazon Business, I was constantly reviewing the voice of customer feedback that my team submitted, trying to understand what is it that's challenging our customers? What do they want from us? And how do we incorporate that into our roadmap? So I think one of the strongest thing about Amazon, yeah, it's the leadership principles because it creates such a strong backbone for an organization, but it's how you weave that into the decisions you make and actually turn them into mechanisms. So we say we like customers and we're, we're obsessed with the customer feedback. Cool. Tell me how you build that into what you do. And when you actually build that into how you make decisions, you truly are living that leadership principle and that idea of being customer obsessed because it's just a part of how you run your business. So the foundation that Amazon gives you in that sense in terms of how you define leadership principles, how you embed them into your decision-making and kind of the the reinforcing elements behind that, it's an incredible, incredible thing. And you see that across every country that Amazon operates in. It's it's not just isolated to a single business unit or a single part. So yeah, the the Amazon experience truly gave me such a such a strong foundation for how I make decisions. And you can be sure I'm taking a lot of that with me anywhere else I go 
because now I think it's just become a part of how I make decisions in a strange way. Yeah, I think it gets embedded in the DNA, right? Once you spent a bit of time there. And I think you made some really great points about the fact that the leadership principles, you know, they only ever ever remain on paper unless you start to truly think about how you can embed them in the way that you, again, think, act and operate. And so I think it's amazing how now as you've been able to move forward, you can carry it as a core part of the way you think. Now, I want to fast forward to you as a leader yourself, Molly, because you've been able to obviously grow a fantastic career, growing pretty significant regions, businesses and teams and more. So just help us just understand a little bit more how you think as a leader, what you think is important, what really defines great leadership in your opinion. Oh, it's such a tough question. I feel as if you'd have to ask my team what they think about me as a leader. I know my my leadership style certainly has changed as as I've grown. And when I mentioned earlier how Gap gave me such a good foundation to build from in my career in retail, it also gave me a good foundation to grow as a leader because in my, I think, second year out of university, I, I started managing my first analyst. And I didn't think it strange at the time. To me, it was just a natural progression. I know how to do my job. I've become good at my job. Now I shall help someone else become good at their job. And from that first moment, I've I've not had a role where I haven't managed teams. And over time, they've just kind of grown and grown and grown in different ways, either through, you know, different levels of reporting lines, different functions, different countries, or now different channels and, and different functions and things like that. And my leadership style has always stayed the same where I like to think that I want to bring my team on this journey with me, but not because I've just told them what to do in an inspiring way, but because they've helped shape this. Now, I I said earlier with London Business School, I felt the same at Amazon that, you know, I like feeling as if I'm the the dumbest person in the room, but that, that perspective isn't meant to, you know, downplay. I'm okay, smart. I can, I can take that. I'm not saying I'm an idiot, but at the same time, I want to learn from other people. I surely don't know it all. I want you to shape this with me. So, Again, from those earliest days, having input from my team on creating this path that we're on, creating the business that we're building, it is absolutely critical to me, partly because they feel bought into it and partly because it's going to make me have a better plan if someone else has fed into this. So I've always had a very collaborative way of working with my team and a very open and transparent relationship with them. You want to talk to me about X, Y, Z, and you don't want to talk to me about ABC, that's fine. I don't, we don't need to be best friends, but at the same time, I want you to feel again, as if you're bringing your authentic self into, into the workplace every day, you're having a bad day. Great. I totally understand that you need help with something. Absolutely. Let's do it. You're not performing well. You know, we're, we're also going to talk about that. So I I've always tried to approach it again in that collaborative fashion, giving people the the skills and capabilities and kind of drive that they need to be successful in their job. Because in all honesty, I'm going to be a better manager, a better leader, a better whatever you call it at the top of your team if my team is successful. So I, I find that the further I get in my career, the more time I just spend on the people side of my team than I spend on actually doing my job some days. So yeah, I, I care. Yeah. I, I don't know how to not care about my team. I I can't shut it off at the end of the day. So I I feel as if my team probably would say that I they can tell that I, I care yeah. about them and what we're doing. Well, you can test them once this goes out, right? And Has see you. what they say. My expectations are incredibly high. <laughs> Standards are incredibly high. But with that, it's it's because I know my team is capable of doing that. So my job is to give them the the capabilities, the resources, the tools to be able to be their best selves as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. Again, really interesting in all of that. One of the things I'm curious about with all of that said is that when we talk about collaboration, especially when it comes to, you know, inputting on projects or or making decisions, there is a certain point in all of this that sometimes there's got to be a hard line and you say, right, all of this is great. All of this is interesting. Thank you for leaning in. But I've got to take a decision. And sometimes it's not always the most popular decision, right? Sometimes you've just got to go in a direction that you know feeds the direction of travel that the business requires. So I'd love to get your perspective on how you kind of get to that point, that moment where you need to make a decision. Maybe collaboration has kind of hit hit its capacity. Just just share your general thoughts on yeah. that. Yeah, I actually think I'm there right now in my current role, which is funny because I used those exact words last week. So I mentioned I, I've been with Curry's now for, for four months now, taking on this new role to be the single-threaded leader of B2B for, for Curry. So working in Curry's business. And it was a phenomenal opportunity because I've not managed multiple channels in one role before. It's always been bricks and mortar or it's been e-commerce, but never the two shall meet. And now it's bricks and mortar, e-commerce, telesales, marketing. It's all these different channels. And I thought, this is amazing, but it means there's no, there's no roadmap laid out for me because no one has set this path before. So coming in, I spent obviously the first 90 days just trying to figure out what in God's name everybody was talking about, try to hit the ground running then immediately flip the lens and lay out my three-year plan. So that's what I've been working on for the last month or two is trying to figure out what that that roadmap looks like. Now, I needed to collaborate with my team because they've all been there a heck of a lot longer than I have, and they, they know much more about the business. I need them, right? And at some point, I create the framework, I create the template to help them harness their ideas, feed all their ideas in, help me prioritize those, give me a sense of value, cost, challenges, opportunities, And then at some point, I've got enough input, and now I need to say, we've already defined where we want to be. What is our end goal? Now it's up to me to make sure we're refining these all in a way that can can get us there. And sometimes that's not about 15 people in a room debating it. It's me, like you said, just saying, I really value all of this input. This absolutely is going to become kind of the threads of this plan. And now I'm going to take this and shape it and structure it in a way that we realistically can deliver because it's kind of the the difference between a top-down and a bottom-up plan. If you bottom-up plan all the time, you're going to shoot for the stars and you're, you're never going to deliver something realistic. So now here's me providing that lens of reality, but they've created all of the, the stuff that comes in underneath it. So I don't know if there's one exact moment necessarily, except for there was one meeting that I walked away and said, Yep, I'm done now. I am good with the crowdsourcing. I'm going to run from here. But outside of this particular instance, it's it's just that sense of capturing all the feedback so people know their voices are heard and that they matter. And then giving yourself time to take that step back and say, does this actually fit with where I said I want to be in three years and where I've you know told Alex, my CEO, where we want to be in five years? Yes or no. If yes, I'm on the right track. Great. Now I'm going to harness this all and package it in a, in a better way. But yeah, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am today if I hadn't taken all those ideas from from my team to feed into it. It's really, really helpful insights in all of that. Molly, one of the things I want to learn a bit more about is just get a better view around your world at this particular level, because I'm sure many people out there listening are thinking, I wonder what a day in the life, I wonder what a week in the life of, of Molly is like at this level of responsibility. And wherever you're comfortable, also just talking to some of the emotions that go into that week in, week out, because it's a lot. It's a lot. So please just just let us in as much as you're comfortable. 
Well, this week is an interesting one because I spent my my Monday doing our, our usual kind of Monday trade. And I really love Monday trade meetings. I do because I like data so much and analytics and, and the stories behind what we actually did last week. So I, I've spent a, my my current team is probably about to mutiny at, at some point, but it was cleaning up all of our reporting, getting standardization, because I, I find my least favorite scenario is when people spend time doing things that are non-value adding. Great. Let's figure out how to automate all that so you can spend the time thinking and talking about the insights. So Monday is a trade day. They give me all the numbers and then very quickly I'll say, Alex, thank you so much for telling me all about the what. Now talk to me about the so what and so what next and how does this make a difference to what you're going to do going forward? So I really like those conversations. So my Monday is always dedicated to to trade type meetings. With the team that I have now, I, I have a lot of one-to-ones with my direct team. I have office hours that I put in the calendar. So anyone in the whole of my organization, I've got an hour free on my calendar every week. So you guys can drop in anytime you want to put time in the calendar. And that's great. Sometimes people use it, but oftentimes I just need to get out there and put myself in front of them to encourage people to to speak to me about what it is that's on their mind. So this week I spent Tuesday to Thursday in Scotland. So hop to train, spend a lot of my time on trains, hop the train up to Scotland, did Aberdeen, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, just sitting out there in the stores with my teams, meeting them all, talking to them about what works, what doesn't work, listening to how they interact with customers. And that is a really valuable time for me when I can be out there with them and really understand how they work, how they engage, what they need, what they do. So yeah, every other week I'll be out in stores with one of my teams or down in pool on the coast with my contact center. It's really nice on a sunny day, even more so. Or back here in our London head office with my with my online team, for example. So I do spend a, quite a bit of time now moving around the country. I did travel a lot with Amazon that tended to be across to different countries, but now it's all just UK-based, UK and Ireland primarily. So just spend a lot of time on, on train zipping around. And it's good. I've got my quiet time on the train to get caught up on emails, digest, do everything. But then once I'm out there with everyone else. I'm not on my phone. I'm not on my laptop. I'm literally here just to spend time with with you guys. So like I said before, a big chunk of my time is just spent with my team. So that's a big, big part of my day. And then I think once you kind of get towards the end of the week, you'll obviously go into sort of recaps, trade meetings, how's the week been progressing. And underpinning all of that is kind of the the program and project management of what my team does. So we're looking to launch a, a big program next week. So there's daily check-ins on this and that my team is looking to deliver middle of next week. So there's there's kind of this underlying program and project management side that just kind of underpins my weeks at the moment as well. And then I do actually find quite a bit more time now, believe it or not. When I left Amazon, I got more time in my day to actually spend time going to events and listening to people talk. No, this is a lot of me talking, but most weeks I'll find an event, a speaker series, something to go to just to get out of my own head a bit and remind myself of all these different people that are doing great things that might inspire me for for my own career. So I do make a conscious effort to try to get out of my own head, get out of my own role and listen to someone else as well. So it's, yeah, every week is a little bit different, but tends to be some combination of of that. I love that. We need to get some form of documentary going at yeah. some point. Oh, and then in between that, though, I've got, got my husband that I adore and our dog. And so my team will also hear me often doing my one-to-ones out walking Frigo. 
Because if I don't need to be on my laptop, I might as well take this 30 minutes and give Frigo a walk and go sit down by the South Bank or something like that. So I do a lot of walking one-to-ones and coffee one-to-ones as well. Anytime anyone will come with me. I love it. I love it. That's incredible. There's a, a few other things from me, Molly. One of the things for me is just reflecting for a moment on, it wasn't a million, million years ago, right, that you were at Gap and not a million years ago that you were having these conversations with your mother and now here you are, right, country manager Amazon running as GM for Curry's for Business. Just as you take this moment with us here on on the podcast, just to kind of reflect over your career, where you are and where you're heading, what really goes through your mind? Because it is a pretty incredible journey where you look at those kind of fairly humble beginnings to where you are now. Yeah, it's a lot that goes through my mind at any given moment. My husband would say I'm, I'm not very good at, at just shutting off and giving myself that quiet space. So conscious effort to try to do that. I never stop and think about it. That's the thing. And my husband does this all the time where he he will be my, you know, super cheerleader saying, babe, I'm so impressed by you. You're the you're the most impressive person I know. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. No, no. Yeah, yeah, go on, go on, go on. And it's only in that moment that I stop and think I am incredibly proud of of what I've done because it hasn't been easy. There wasn't wasn't really anything just given to me saying, hey, here's your gift of a career. Just go take the steps and tick the boxes. So it is really cool when I look back at it. But I again, I think it's never been this conscious effort to say, this is what I have to do. This is just where I'm going to go. It's just where I kept going, where as long as my my path is always thinking about what lies next for me, and I'm not done here. I mean, I've told my my boss, Lindsay, who's the chief operating officer of Curry's or Alex, who's the CEO of Curry's. Yeah, I'm certainly coming for your job someday because it just to me, that's the next logical step that I I keep building my career. I keep building my skill set in a way that I I can take on more responsibility, be it Curry's, be it somewhere else, be it in the UK, a different country. I don't know yet. That's the part where I'm not fixated on one particular path or one particular idea. It's more the notion of just always trying to build myself and grow myself towards something I don't know, but it's always growing. And that, that's all I do know, I suppose. Yeah. And do you see any kind of end state for yourself, Molly? You know, I guess I get this quite a lot, certainly from my own family, as they just say, Alex, when when is enough? Because you know, people describe me as a bit of a workaholic, but the thing I've come to learn is I I love it. I love what I do. Nothing really feels like a chore for that reason. And I don't really look at life and say, here's the end state, here's the, the, the end goal. I just love the feeling of progression, building things, making a change in the world, driving legacy. But I'd love to know for you, having already achieved an astronomical amount, as you look ahead, one, what is driving you, but two, is there any end state in your mind or is it just keep climbing? I guess until I find an alternative, I just keep going. And until I lose my passion for doing that, if that's not my passion anymore of growth and challenge, if that's not what I want, great, I'll find a new passion. But I can't imagine a scenario in which I don't choose a path that I'm I'm passionate about. And I think that's where you and I probably have a lot of similarities. So we'll make a statement here on this podcast that you message me as soon as you think you found that end point and I'll do the same for you. And I doubt it will be anytime soon for for either of us, to be honest. I completely agree. With Until you. I can buy my chateau in France, and then my husband Frigo and I move down, open our 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 dog farm, something like that. But short of having just a horde of dogs that we're training around us, 
We'll just keep going. Well, that's the updated deal. You're going to message me once you <laughs> exactly. get the chateau and yeah. I'll figure out what mine looks like and yeah. then I'll let you know. Molly, this has been incredible. I, I actually have one final question for you at this point, which is if you were talking to that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what would your best pieces of advice be for them? The first thing you have to do is ask yourself, why do you want that? Understand what motivates you. If it is a title, if it's money, if it's a skill, if it's responsibility, doesn't matter. But be clear with yourself on on why you're doing it. Because if you can understand your own motivation, you can give yourself something to sense check along the way to say, am I still on track? Because I've said, this is what I care about. This is what's important to me. So have that honest conversation with yourself, with your mom, with your partner, with anyone but do it because that will that will help anchor you as as everything tends to spin around you. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. That's a, another mic drop moment right there, Molly. This has been incredible, right? I think that your your passion, your tenacity, your drive is infectious. If people could feel it through their screens or through the mic, they'd be ready and raring to go as I feel right now. So Molly, really, really grateful for you coming on. Have you enjoyed the experience? It was such a good day. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Absolutely. So to anyone out there who's been listening or watching, if on YouTube, again, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any of the podcasting platforms, please take a moment to leave us a five-star review. Lastly, as mentioned, we've got the newsletter now out, EliteLevel.co. Please be sure to sign up and subscribe so you can get a nice digestible breakdown of this episode and Molly's wonderful insights. Hope that you've enjoyed it today and look forward to seeing you on the next one.